feels so good to get a sincere well done from someone whose opinion matters, doesn't it? You know, to, to work really hard on a paper or a test, and then the teacher hands it back, and there's that red ink on there that says, great job, right? Or if you're into sports, to, um, to go out in the field and make a great play. And then the kind of play that then the coach seeks you out afterwards and says, great job, great play. Or to get that great review at your job from your supervisor or your board. To if you're into music or drama, those moments where you step out on stage for the curtain call and the, the crowd just stands because they appreciated you know, what you had to do. Those things feel so good. Or to get that note from a friend who had just been through a really tough time and you were there for him. And you get that note that says, thank you. Thank you for being there for me. Or to hear your mother or your father look in, your eye, look in the eye and say, I'm so proud of you. Don't those moments feel great? Well, in this series that we've been in, we're in week four of a four-part series. We've seen the word you fool a lot, haven't we? As we looked at Proverbs, we looked at, at into, to Luke, we've seen the word fool come up a lot of times. As we bring this series to a close, I want to cast a vision for a well-done life. How's that sound? All right, it's going to be a tough road, but here we go. I want to start by telling you a story about something that happened right before this whole series began. Going into this series, I always try to like to read several resources in advance. And for this series, I read, reread the book of Proverbs. I reread the book of Luke and then two other books. And my readings up until the story that I'm going to tell, my readings took me right up to completing Luke 15. So remember Luke 15. On a Friday night, I'd finished with Luke 15. All right. And then this happened. The next day I woke up. And it was a Saturday morning. I knocked out a couple projects. I made some lunch. I sat down on the couch, turned on the TV, and there was a Western on, a Western that I'd never seen but I'd heard about called Pale Rider. Maybe some of you guys have heard about that one. I'm not endorsing the movie, blah, 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 but I think I was meant to see a specific scene from this movie. Well, in the movie, if you're not familiar with it, there's this group of families, and they're trying to carve out life in the hills just outside of a snowy mountain town called La Hood, California. And they created this settlement. And what they were trying to do in this settlement is they were trying to find gold. They believed that there was gold there, and they were trying to find it. But there's a rich and powerful man. His name was Coy La Hood, and he wanted to run him off the land so that he could have all the gold to himself. So he sent a bunch of his thugs out into that settlement, and they threatened people, and they beat people up. And he even shot a girl's dog. These are some mean thugs, right? So hope appears lost until a gunslinger turned pastor, a gunslinger turned pastor arrived, and they called him the preacher. He was played by Clint Eastwood in the movie. I don't think anyone's ever going to pick Clint Eastwood to play me in the movie that will never be made on my life. All right, so this preacher, get this, the preacher was a flawed individual who used questionable tactics to do what he thought he needed to do. And when LaHood recognized this preacher is a very effective person at what he does with his skill set, he calls the preacher into his office where the preacher's true values are tested. LaHood begins with flattery. And he said, it must be difficult for such a devout and humble man of faith, such as yourself, to carry on your important work without the right resources. You should move here, he said, into town. I'll even build you a brand new church. To which the preacher replied, I can see where a preacher might be mighty tempted by an offer like that. And LaHood said, oh, indeed. 
And then the preacher said, well, if a preacher had a new church, he'd be thinking about getting himself a bunch of new clothes. And LaHood said, oh, we'd have them tailor-made. Then the preacher said, if the preacher had a new church and new clothes, he'd start thinking about those Sunday collections. To which LaHood replied, oh, in a town as rich as LaHood, that preacher would be a wealthy man. And then the preacher said this, and I think it's pretty close to a direct quote from the movie. That's why it wouldn't work. Can't serve God and mammon both. Mammon being money. When the preacher said those words, something inside me said, I think this is for me or this is for us or somewhere, maybe both. So that was Saturday morning, Saturday night. I opened up my Bible. Where did I leave off? Luke 15. So what do you think I opened to? Luke 16. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Luke 16. I'm not making this up, you guys. I'm not making this up. That night, it opened up to Luke 16. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we'd love to give you one free today. Each and every week, we keep a stack there at the table in the back. We'd love for you to take one home, and you can make more parallels between Clint Eastwood movies and the Bible on your own. You know? So here's what I found. So 16 opens up with verse 1, opens up with a story in which there's flattery and a flawed individual who uses questionable tactics. And a wealthy man recognizes this effectiveness of this guy, and he invites him into his office. And Jesus uses that story to make a couple points. Here's the first point that Jesus makes. Let's fast forward to verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So right after Jesus makes this point about being faithful with the resources that belong to somebody else, comes verse 13 and 14, or verse 13, and some of these words are going to sound very familiar. No servant can serve two masters, or either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And if we were to translate this more accurate, we would use the English word mammon, which is money, possessions, wealth. Both Jesus and this preacher make the same point. Can't serve God and mammon. Well, with the show of hands... How many of you know that's really easy to say? It's really easy to say, isn't it? Man, it's another thing to do. And to even know if we're doing it, right? Well, I was in Juarez this week. We had a board meeting for the children's home. And I was on my way back to the U.S. And I was talking to one of the other board members as we were crossing the bridge. You have a lot of time to talk while you're crossing the bridge. And as he was talking, he was telling about how his dad used to work for a number of TV evangelists. He used to sell TV time um, to, to some of them. And I tell you, it was a real unsettling conversation. Really unsettling. Because what he saw with his own eyes was how good people, not just talking about the televangelists here, but the people around them, how good people could lose their way really, really, really fast. And they could be saying, and they could even be telling themselves, I don't serve God in money. 
but it's easy to wait, lose your way really, 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 really fast when the right guardrails aren't in place to protect us and to help us to see whether or not we're falling off the rails here. Guardrails that can protect us from the controlling and corrupting power that money can have over us. Well, I got to my hotel room that night, and I'm not making this up either. I come from the bridge, and then I walk to Whataburger, because you got to walk to Whataburger, right? And then I come back to my hotel, I turn on the TV, and what is coming on as I turn it on? 2020 special. Some of the people in the first hour saw it on Jim and Tammy Baker. I'm like, I don't think this is coincidence either. And I watch that show, and I'm literally, before the show was over, literally, I was on my knees in that hotel room just saying, Lord, search my heart. Search my heart. I was on my knees praying, God, help us to put the right kind of guardrails in place in this church where we protect ourselves from the kinds of things that were happening. And also, Lord, help us to wrestle with this topic well because it is so easy to fall into all these traps that are all around money. And if we're going to wrestle with this topic, well, we can't just read the words. We have to reflect on our lives. The only way that I know to measure what we truly believe is for competing values to be put to a test. That's the only way I know to know whether or not we really believe the things that we say we believe. And we test them, and then we see what gets our first and our best. In the movie, that fictional preacher, he was tested. He was tested, and he passed the test. In that TV show that I watched, all kinds of people were tested. They failed. They failed horribly. With the time that we have left today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a test that Jesus was presented with that involved money. We're going to reflect on how he responded. And then we're going to use his response as a test that we can apply to our own lives with the goal, with the goal of one day hearing the words, well done, well done, from the one whose opinion matters most. All right, so we got a lot to cover. Let's take out our notes, if you would be so kind, and let's get started. There's a place to write this down. Both the Old and the New Testaments provide a lot of teaching about wealth and possessions, a lot. We looked at just two books of the Bible for this series. Primarily, we spent our entire time in Proverbs and in Luke. Proverbs is filled with all kinds of wisdom that can bring you success in this life. There's lots of great wisdom. And embedded within these wise sayings, there's a few verses like this that point to the importance of putting God at the center of it all. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. Well, after spending some time in the book of Proverbs, we then turned our attention to the book of Luke. And I had never done this before. I had never read Luke start to finish and then, no, read Proverbs start to finish and then read Luke start to finish. That was really interesting. Because then as I'm reading Luke, I'm seeing Proverbs principles popping everywhere as well as specific references to Solomon. I'm thinking this is really interesting how there seems to be these these things bringing this together. And what appeared to be happening in Luke when it came to this theme of money and mammon is that Luke was saying, here are these proverb principles, and now what you're seeing being revealed is a higher level. These proverb principles are a baseline for which we're now going to reveal this higher level of insight. Jason did an outstanding job last week of walking us through one of the examples we see in Luke. 
In Luke 12, Jesus told a story about a guy who was a Proverbs poster boy, so much so that his barns were literally overflowing with grain, right? So they were filled with plenty. And when he died, he didn't hear the words, well done. What words did he hear? He heard, you fool. You fool. This is from what we looked at last week, Luke 12, 20 through 21. God said to him, fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And those things that you prepared, whose will they be? So it is for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Proverbs principles, they can help you be very, very, very successful in life. But what does it truly gain a person to succeed in laying up treasures for ourselves in this life if we fail at what matters most? The parable that Jason walked us through last week It's just one of several cautionary tales that we find in the Bible where someone thinks this is what's true about myself or reality only to later have something else revealed. Either, no, that's not really what my value system was or that's not really how reality worked. So let's turn our attention. Oh, again, backing up just a little bit. The only way I know to determine whether or not our professions of faith match the convictions of our hearts is for competing values to be put to the test. And then that brings us now to the test that, we're, that Jesus was presented with. And it is a fascinating study we're going to look at here quick. The script that Jesus was given, he flipped it, and the true values were revealed. So let's take a look at this. Luke chapter 20, and let's start with verse 19. All right, Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 19. Now this event comes near the end of Jesus' life. Jesus knew that powerful enemies who wanted him dead were waiting for him in Jerusalem. And when he arrived, his most cunning adversaries set a series of traps. Here is one of them. All right, again, verse, uh, chapter 20, starting with verse 19. Let's go just the first two verses of this so far. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. All right, let's dig into this a little bit. There's a lot here. Let's start with this parable that got the scribes and the chief priests all worked up. That parable can be found right before what we just read. So when they say that parable, they're talking about the parable that you would have just read if we, if we got the, the run into this. And in some of our, our Bibles, it'll give you a little header. They'll, they'll give a description of this parable. It might be called something like the parable of the wicked tenants. The wicked tenants. It's a parable about someone who planted a vineyard and then let other people take care of it. But the tenants forgot the vineyard's not theirs. And they started treating this vineyard like it was their property. And they kept all the fruit to themselves. They rejected the word of the messengers that the owner sent their way. And they even killed his beloved son. And the scribes and the chief priests, they knew this was about them. And the irony in their response is so thick. They realized that this parable was spoken against them and their attempt to repudiate the parable confirms its validity. This is such, this is just wonderful here. Then the irony doesn't stop there either. They then set out to develop this trap that's going to reveal Jesus' true belief, and in the process, their own hypocrisy 
gets brought to the surface. All right, let's talk just for a little bit about why they thought their trap was such a good one. They hoped to catch Jesus in saying something that would get him in trouble with the governor, with the governor. Now, Luke has already given us a heads up as to who this governor is and what his character is. In Luke 3.1, we find out who the governor was, where we read it, is the fifth, it was the 15th, or in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Luke provides two names here. Remember Tiberius Caesar, because that name will come up in just a few minutes. But right now, it's zero in on Pilate, the governor. Here's what else Luke reveals about him in Luke. Luke 13, 1, there, was some, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate was a Roman official who was, was assigned an extremely volatile region. The area that he was assigned to was an area where winning wasn't possible, but failure wasn't an option. Imagine getting a job like that, right? Anything remotely resembling rebellion incurred Rome's wrath. And Pilate was charged with carrying Roman justice out, even if that meant mingling people's blood with their sacrifices. So anything remotely resembling rebellion incurred Rome's wrath. And as we're about to see, anything remotely resembling compliance with Rome incurred the wrath of Jewish zealots. Knowing this, the scribes and the chief priests, they sent some undercover agents who pretended to be truth seekers with a question that was guaranteed to put Jesus at odds with someone. And that's where we pick up verses 21 through 22. So, Chief priests, the scribes asked him, or these agents asked Jesus, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? This appeared to be a very well-conceived trap. Tribute to Caesar that they were talking about, it was a Roman-imposed tax. It was an oppressive burden that most Jews despised. They didn't just despise it because it cut into their meager incomes. They also despised it because their money was going to fund an empire that was oppressive, that was occupying their land, and that was elevating other gods. And in that time and in that place, there was this group that rose up against that. They were called the Zealots. Their slogan was, No King But God. They were even known to assassinate Roman sympathizers when they had a chance. What does Luke reveal about the zealots? He reveals this, Luke 6.15. As Luke is listing the 12 disciples that are in Jesus' inner circle, Simon was called a what? The zealot. So if Jesus says, you should pay the tribute, he's got to sleep with one eye open, right? If he says you should not pay the tribute, he's got to deal with Pilate. So this looks like a trap here. You affirm the tribute, you incur the wrath of your people. You reject the tribute, you incur the wrath of Rome. This is a trap that appears to have no way out until Jesus says this, verses 23 and 24. He says, but he perceived their craftiness and he said to them, Show me a denarius whose likeness 
and whose inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. Caesar's. A denarius was a silver Roman coin that was about the size of a dime. It's the amount that a Roman soldier or average worker would receive for a day's work. The Jews were not permitted to mint any silver or gold coins of their own. So if they wanted to carry a silver or gold coin, they would have to carry Roman coins like a denarius. And that presented a test right there. Because on one side of this coin that they're talking about, the the denarius, on one side, there was a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And on that side was the Latin inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. If you're a faithful Jew, do you want that thing in your pocket? No. If you want to flip it to the other side, that's not going to help. On the other side, there was a picture of a goddess, a Roman goddess, and it said high priest. So there's a test right there. Are you going to carry these blasphemous coins? And here we see Jesus begin to flip the script. They set out to test him. And Jesus isn't going to just pass the test himself. He's going to reveal something about his accusers. Jesus isn't the one carrying the coin. You see that? He says, can you show me a coin? Oh, sure. And they pull up that coin. And he says, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. And he's not done yet. Then he says this. Verse 25 and 26. Jesus said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. I think most of us in our head, we would love to have the answer that makes our critics silent, wouldn't we? Rarely ever works. They just get louder, (laughs) start pounding on things, right? But we're not Jesus. One greater than Solomon was in their midst. Can I get an amen? In effect, Jesus was saying, let Caesar have those coins that bear his image. You bear the image of God. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's. Render under God what is God's. This whole give God connection is strong in the Bible. Just to see what would happen, I went to this search engine called BibleGateway.com. I did a keyword search for give and God in the same verse and Lord and give in the same verse. More than 700 results came up when I did that. There's a strong give and God connection. God is a giver, and giving is one important part of what it means to bear his image. How many of you ever heard of Sam Houston, the Texan? Ever heard of Sam Houston? Sam Houston was a soldier and politician who came to Christ. And after his baptism, people noticed that he changed how he gave, dramatically so. And someone asked him, why are you now changing the way you're giving? And when they did that, Houston is said to have said this. My pocketbook was baptized too. I don't know if that story is true, but isn't that a good test of whether or not we really believe what we say we believe? So how do we know? How do we know if we left our pocketbook on the bank, if we were baptized in the river or in the pew, if we were baptized in a church? Let's get very practical. Let's get very concrete. And to do so, I listed a whole lot of verses again. You'll notice that I did this on purpose for most of our messages here. 
listed a lot of verses. Because if we're going to talk about money, especially in light of that TV special that I saw this week, I want to do everything I can to make sure you guys, you go look this up too. Don't just, when these words get so manipulated, manipulated and so twisted, I want to say, here's my source material. I want to encourage you to look, fact check on all of this. Don't just look at the verses, look at the context around. Because if we're going to talk on this, let's make sure that we do the best we can to be true to what the scripture says. Instead of manipulating and, and lying to either ourselves or trying to manipulate for other ends or whatever. So, as best I can discern, as I go to the scripture, here's what I see in terms of what does this look like in practical ways. Let's start with the Old Testament and build towards the New. The Old Testament establishes tithing as a benchmark for rendering to God what is God's. If you only had the Old Testament and you said, what does it mean to render under God's what is God's? It's pretty hard to look at the Old Testament and come away not saying, yeah, tithing seems to be the, the starting point or the benchmark. Tithing is a practice of turning 10% of what comes in back to God. The Old Testament appears to have at least three tithes. In the language surrounding tithing, it is strong. Malachi says, failing to tithe is robbing God. That's what Malachi says. I include a number of scriptures that build the case for tithing, a real basic case. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. There's some scriptures around that. We honor God by offering our first and our best in response. And then there's some more passages that talk specifically about the tithe. So I'd encourage you to read and reflect on those passages if you want to be faithful to knowing and understanding what the Old Testament says. Now, because we live in a different time in a different place, it's very fair to ask whether these things apply to us now. That's a great question. And one of the questions that often comes up when people are talking about tithing is they say, should we tithe on our income before we render to the IRS what is the IRS's or after we render to the IRS what is the IRS's? Well, as you're going to see now as we turn to the New Testament, that question doesn't matter. Because as we turn to the New Testament, tithing is a milestone. It's a mile marker, and it starts to get in the rearview mirror. As we turn our attention in the New Testament, what we see happening is we say everything is the Lord's. We render everything. Everything. Our time and our talents, our homes, our cabins, our trucks, our boats, our tools, our toys, our kitchens, our living rooms, our coats, our shoes, our cameras, our phones. We are, we're to go through life being led by the Spirit, saying, everything is God's. How can I use this in a way that is God-honoring? That's the direction that the New Testament points us. Christianity is a radical reordering of our lives and our loves. I came across this quote in one of the books I reread coming into the series. Every New Testament example of giving goes far beyond the tithe. However, none falls short of it. It seems fair to ask, God, you really expect less of me, who has your Holy Spirit within, lives in the wealthiest society in human history, then you demanded from the poorest Israelite. As thunder follows lightning, giving follows grace. So, tithing, great place to start. Pick one, pick pre or post. You know, it's a great place to start. But, I'd say it's a test. I shouldn't say but. It's a test you can use, that I can use, determine whether or not we're on the right path. But the whole thing is about the path. It's about the path. I want to encourage you to write this down in your notes as we read and reflect on the passages we've included. Tithing in the New Testament is akin to a checkpoint on the way to a higher level. And here are some of the themes that I see in the New Testament. Financial generosity is presented as a mean by which, means by which we demonstrate the sincerity of our faith and model Christ-likeness. The practice of tithing, it's affirmed by Jesus, but it's affirmed almost in passing as he calls out religious people for neglecting the weightier matters of the law. The New Testament is filled with the example of Jesus 
inviting people to display radical trust and the Holy Spirit moving people to go beyond and cautionary tales about finance and stewardship and generosity. You know, as, as we wrestle with these things, I saw in a number of sources, they talk about the different questions that often people use to try to say, are we on the right path with our lives? And as I think about accountability questions that I've seen, you know, numerous times, especially for men, these used lists usually include something about spending time in prayer in the word. They usually have something about sexual ethics. There's normally questions about how much time we spend with our family. And all of these are important questions. All of them are important questions. And let's not forget that Jesus said more about money than any of those things. So I think it is important for us to look at finances when we talk about faith. At Emmanuel, we've got a vision for a church where more people are becoming more like Jesus in authentic community. And if we're going to be true to that, then this is one area that we just can't neglect, that we can't just push off to the side. Well, as we look to scriptures as our guide, here's the path that we see at this church and the path that we invite people to join us on. We're all on a journey with this. The path is like this, from keep all to share some to God first to joyful stewardship. As we bring this series to a close, I want to make sure that you see God first isn't the end of this journey. And I hope I can articulate what I'm trying to say here. If we were to just to say the end of this is to give sacrificially in this way, if we were to end there, then what we've done is we've taught the law. We haven't preached the gospel. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. Good news. The end game isn't to create donors who tithe out of obligation. The end game isn't to say, oh, there's the worldly taxes that the kingdoms of this world give, and now here's God's tax. That, that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, invite into this journey where we are not making donors. We're making disciples. Disciples who experience peace and joy and freedom and security that comes as we get further and further down this path. I want to encourage you to write this good news down. This good news down. If you continue to follow the teaching example of Jesus, God first giving becomes joyful stewardship. And there's going to be back and forth. There's going to be days where it feels like, nope, this is a discipline. But more and more, the further you get in that journey, all of a sudden, it's just, it, it becomes more this joyful stewardship. The things that we were once blind to, we now see in color. Everything changes when we really deep down understand that everything is a gift. Expectancy increases when we experience that God wants to help. That, we don't have, that this isn't about shame and guilt. Instead, he wants to help us experience more peace and joy. And his principles are life-giving. Excitement grows when we realize we've got access to resources that aren't limited to our own personal capacities. I hope as you get a chance in small churches to talk about these things, share some of the stories where you saw God do things that you could not have done in your own. Those stories where he talks about you get a tenfold, hundredfold return, you know, where, where you just see him meeting these needs more abundantly than we ever could on our own. And you start to realize, no, wait a minute, God is in here. There's also an eagerness 
and an appreciation that reaches new heights as you partner with God's transformational work and you begin to see what can happen as we entrust our resources to God and he uses them for great things. And here's the best part. As we surrender our lives to God and we invite his presence in our lives, as we take those steps of faith, we begin to realize we're not walking alone. That he is there with us and in us and through us. I mean, you and I, we need that because we do foolish things all the time. Can I give an amen to that? All the time. We do foolish things on just the Proverbs level of just making bad decisions. We do foolish things in the sense of not treating this like it really is God's. Right? We do foolish things all the time. We've all failed those tests. We've failed them frequently, miserably, right? This is why I want to end this series with this, with this talk point. There was a real preacher who passed every test, every test, on whose behalf? On ours. I probably should have had that, that our behalf is the ending thing, or the fill-in. On our behalf, knowing that we couldn't do it on our own, he passed every test on our behalf for our instruction so we can see what it looks like when you get it right, for our salvation, and I'm using this in the biblical sense of the word, which is both in this life and the next, and for our joy, for our joy. When Jesus confronted the scribes and the chief priests with this challenge to render to Caesar what was Caesar and to render with God's what was God's, they did the opposite, didn't they? They looked at those coins that had Caesar's face on them. They kept those coins, What did they hand over to Pilate? Not the coins. They handed over Jesus, in whom the fullness of God dwelt. Did that stop God? No. On that Roman cross, he secured our foundation and our salvation so that all that would turn to him, our sins can be forgiven, his Holy Spirit can come into us, and our minds and our hearts can start to be changed from within where we can start to look and say, God, everything is truly from you. And to be able to trust him and to move forward with that. To be able to get that fresh start. Well, as I was on my way home to Minnesota yesterday, I like looking at the bookstores and to see what's in the bestseller section. And this book was in the bestseller section, not often in the corner, but in the bestseller section. The title of the book is, Am I Dying? I hope everyone in this room knows the answer to that. What's the answer? The answer is yes. And I don't say that in a snarky way. I don't say that in a trivial way. Isn't this one of the most fundamental questions that we want to start with in life? Because the question, I mean, we'd all answer that question the same way. Every person on the planet. The real question is this. How are we living? How are we living? Are we living as though we believe that this world is all that there is? Do we believe that our deepest needs are met here? Do we believe that greed is really in our best interest? Are we chasing after things that we can't take with us? Are we treating things that belong to God like they're ours? Are we placing our trust in things that can get lost, stolen, destroyed? Are we focused so much on mammon that we're not investing in the relationships that matter most? These are important questions. Are we doing that or are we saying yes to a preacher who passed every test on our behalf 
and inviting His Spirit to come into our minds and our lives and to change us from within. No one wants to get to the end of their life on that last day and hear you fool. So let's invite God to do a changing work in us so that when we get to the end, we can hear these words from Luke nineteen seventeen. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray and then let's seal with this with a song. Oh, Lord. Father, forgive me for not, even, not doing a better job of, of choosing these words with even more care. And Father, I pray that any of my words that got in the way of your spirit, your truth, your word, that they would fall away and that you would speak as only you can with that perfect, perfect blend of grace and truth. Father, we thank you that you love us enough to call things out in our lives and to put tests that help us to get through life without deceiving ourselves and then getting to the end and recognizing that we just blew it. Lord, I pray, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us now and bring to mind where we're really at so that we could come forth from this place honest with ourselves. And, and Lord, as that happens, Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your Spirit that we could experience that Father's love and that deep desire you have to come alongside and to help and to change us and to bring us to this new place. We pray that one of the things we could leave behind is guilt and shame. And we could come forward, Father, instead with hope and expectancy of a life where we don't have to fear the things most people fear, that our security doesn't have to be in finances, that our, that our image doesn't have to be, be puffed up by things that we wear or have or any of that kind of stuff. But Father, you could help us to put first things first and experience that joy and that security that comes with knowing that you are truly the giver of all good things. Help us to come to you, Father, with that expectancy. In Jesus' name, amen.